Uh, hello, everyone, and uh, thanks for joining us. Apologies for the uh, the slight issue uh, with the, the, the setup here. Um, uh, so, um, you know, we start on slide two, and we'll have a look at uh, the main changes in our LEIs versus last month. So the, the key thing to really emphasize is that I think the biggest thing that we were focused on coming into this month was whether our US recession model would trigger. Um, you know, just as a reminder, this is our real-time estimate of whether the previous month would be classified as a recession by the MBER uh, when they eventually come to date recessions. Um, so, you know, at, as of our, as of month end August, the model did not actually trigger, uh, but the probability still remains relatively elevated. There was a slight drop in the recession probability risk, um, mainly due to some of the soft data inputs improving. So, you know, the fact that the market um, had a, a fairly risk-on month um, was um, helpful to, to cause that um, probability to ease off a little bit. Um, so, you know, despite that, though, overall, our Eurozone and China recession indicators still show recession and our, and our liquidity and cyclical growth LEIs are still pretty poor. So the overall message from us is that in terms of six months plus outlook, um, based on the most reliable models we have, um, you know, this is still a risk off mindset and that's still kind of, in our view, the core positioning. Um, something new that we have been thinking about for clients is that again, now that equities have sold back off, we've seen the short squeeze, um, you know, that there's a lot of concerns that sentiments too bearish, positioning's already too bearish and people are worried, what if there's a shift? So in our mind, the answer really is to still maintain the risk off positioning, but look for kind of relatively smart ways to um, try and hedge the upside risks. So, um, you know, as, as we're putting our lead indicator watch, we think this is actually a pretty good environment to look at things like core flies. So, you know, buy, buy, buy a core, sell two cores and, and then buy another core further up um, to, you know, to, to the end of the year and beyond. So, you know, if, if um, options and these kind of trades are in your wheelhouse, then, you know, feel free to reach out. We can get into a bit more details on the exact structuring. Um, but those, this is the kind of environment where we think those kind of structures will give you a pretty good payoff. You know, you know, in terms of if you manage to nail the exact um, strikes on expiry, you know, the payoffs are in the order of, you know, 12 to 1 and the like. Um, again, I think overall bull is pretty efficiently priced right now. But, you know, when it's efficiently priced, these are the kind of structures that are okay for a right tail hedge. Um, you know, in terms of the main focus of our research over the past month, you know, as we put here on the bullet point, you know, we've been thinking a lot about, you know, how can we be wrong, right? If, if we're, you know, we have a pretty bearish outlook, you know, we see a lot of other strategies, a lot of commentary with very bearish outlooks. So we've been trying to think about what are the positive stories and where they make sense. Um, and to us, you know, the most positive story that we've seen out there is about the US labor market strength. Um, and, and the main point we would make is that for us in general, we don't use any labor market inputs into any of our models. Um, when we've looked at the data, labor market data historically, the main concern is that these data series tend to be very heavily revised at turning points, just due to some issues around collection delays um, and, and you know, issues around double counting. So you know, to, to us, just because employment number, non-farm payrolls, these things are, are better than expected, it, you know, in real time, it's not useful. The first releases of these data always tend to be over-optimistic at the turns. If you had to use labor market data in general, it's things like initial claims are kind of a much higher quality data series, um, you know, in, in terms of how it's collected and, and the revisions and the accuracy of it in, in real time. 
So we're not saying that the labor market isn't uh, important, but it's just, you know, to us, it, it's not the most, you, you can't really rely on it as an input in, into the model. This is why for us, when we build our models, we think a lot, you know, about, uh, you know, they kind of um, genuinely leading data that's minimally revised, right? So for example, survey data, things like consumer expectations relative to current conditions, things like credit spreads, um, you know, things like, um, you know, ISM new order inventories. These are the things that, you know, some were reliably in previous cycles shown their value and, they, and, you know, they have minimal revisions or no revisions at all. And so on most of these measures, the underlying um, message about, you know, a slowdown in activity, in particular in the kind of more uh, rate exposed sensitive sectors like housing, manufacturing, that that's very much, you know, uh, visible in terms of LEIs. Um, so, you know, to us, the, the real downside risk here is that the, the Bullwip effect is, we're seeing more and more evidence, the Bullwip effect is probably ending, you know, this over, over ordering uh, up and down the supply chain is going to come to a stop, people are going to be selling too much inventories, and then we're going to get the kind of sequential drop in activity, and that will slowly filter out into the rest of the US economy. Um, so, you know, obviously we're not exactly there yet, but, you know, the fact that our recession model risks have ticked up shows that this is increasingly going to become a more kind of imminent uh, issue. And um, finally, just, uh, you know, in, you know in, in my opinion, at least, I think that the best of what really VP does and somewhat more unique is that, yes, you know, we build lots of these models, lead indicators of growth, liquidity, and, and so forth. But we also, you know, like to do these big thematic pieces that take, you know, kind of a big picture view and bring together Kind of historic and thematic perspective. So um, I would highlight for clients that you know we put out our you know commodity history part two, a report where we took a look at the history of various um, kind of sing commodities, you know things you know uh, and try and draw lessons in terms of the regulatory environment going forwards for essentially commodity investing and energy investing um, uh, for investors today. So you know we're, we're looking at things like prohibition, the history of coal, history of rare earths. And you know, and tell a few kind of tell a few of the key stories from that, which offer good analogies to how to think about um, whether you know fossil fuel energy sectors are investable and how ultimately governments um, will kind of treat the sector. Uh, so, yeah, Tian, I, I would just I would just add on the recession point. Um, you know, in the leading indicator watch we put out this week, um, you know, as you say labor market data, non-farm payrolls heavily revised around these turning points, you know, at the onset of a recession, which is ideally when you need the most unrevised clean data. Um, but then looking through, you know, look at, at some of the high frequency, shorter term surveys and going through the whole sequencing of looking at the monthly and the quarterly leading indicators. Um, I think they all are painting the same picture and that the US consumer uh, resilience that was there is really starting to fade now. And so the key marginal change that we had seen um, is that through the high frequency surveys, a lot of consumers now are really struggling uh, to keep up with mortgage payments, rent payments. Um, we've seen a lot of people um, survey that, uh, you know, they're reducing other spending just to pay their energy bills. And um, at the same time, when we pair that and marry that with some of the monthly tools, uh, that we have, you know, we can look at things like even ISM surveys, just the subcomponent for the um, for the employment index, where you know it's got a six-month lead on on uh, on payrolls, and you know going back, uh, going even further onto the credit cycle data, um, it's abundantly clear that the credit cycle has 
returns um, turn negative. And so when we're looking at things like retail sales, um, you know, the the picture is is very much negative. I think now it's just a question of, um, you know, when does that uh, reversal really start to gather momentum? And I think, as you say, it's, it's linked to the forward effects and um, effectively, we, you know, we have seen the, the bloated inventories we've been quoting, um, ISM reports, company transcripts, and um, a lot of the a lot of the messaging has been that, um, you know, as soon as the music stops playing, you know, the, the, the game is over, where a lot of these guys have built up inventory to such a level um, that, you know, as soon as the consumer starts to break, um, that can lead to quite a vicious uh, downward spiral. And again, I think um, we, we just want to keep emphasizing that the bullwhip effect reversal isn't perhaps uh, fully appreciated uh, by the market. I, I don't know if you have anything else to add on to that, Fiona. Yeah, no, no I, yeah, I, I think that's a good point, right? Like the, the consumer is the biggest point of uncertainty because we are in an environment where the real data is probably not so good. The nominal data is fine. Um, lots of companies will still be looking at their revenue forecast projections in nominal terms and things still look good. Obviously we know inflation's high and it's gonna eat into you know, start to eat into margins, right, essentially. So, um, you know, I think that's where the point of divergence is. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see when it starts to bite. And like, like you say, there's, there's quite a few surveys showing that certainly for the lower income consumers, the, the pain is already biting. Um, but obviously, you know, for the high, high, high income stuff, uh, consumers, in theory, they're still sat on excess savings, but it, it's not obvious that they're going to keep spending. So this is like an open-ended question. We'll just keep tracking. Right now, I would term it as a plateau in consumer activity um, rather than um, so that it, because it's not growing as more of the kind of, um, you know, leading areas starts to slow down, then potentially I think the, the consumer and the labor market will kind of be the last, last pieces to, to drop as well. So, yeah. Um, so I think it's something very important I did want to do on this call. And I think we've got very feedback from various clients on this. Is I, I want to really walk through on slide three here, this idea of VPs, desert island tools. Um, essentially, obviously we, we look at thousands of charts and, and indicates and process a lot of data, but you know, we can really kind of really focusing on what are the most important ones to us and the most core part of our cyclical framework. And this is essentially what we laid out here on slide three. You know, I, I would term this like the six most important charts uh, that every VP client probably should look at every month. And this is basically how we this is ultimately what's going to help us set our risk on risk off in terms of, you know, the models. And it's really, this is the kind of starting point from which we then make other decisions. Um, so the top left-hand chart on slide three here is our global excess liquidity, you know, very much a quantity measure of liquidity. Again, you can see it's a leading chart, you know, you can push it forward. So right now it's, you know, the message is pretty bearish, right? It's kind of, at, you know, multi-decade lows right now. So we know that in quantity terms, there's basically a lack of um, liquidity in the system you know, what, what liquidity growth that is, i.e. what money growth that is, is being absorbed by the real economy and being absorbed by inflation. Uh, the top middle chart, again, a heavily used chart first, a heavily used indicator first is our business cycle financing index. This is essentially a equal weighted diffusion index of G20 central bank policy. So basically, as you can see in the chart, if the red line is very low, it's telling you there's a synchronized hiking cycle and if the red line is high, it's telling you there's a synchronized easing cycle. So again, this provides a pretty good lead of turns on risk assets and positioning. Uh, the, the top right-hand chart 
is something we can only generate, we can generate less history for just due to uh, data constraints, but essentially it's a policy impulse measure. So it's kind of a second derivative measure. Um, so once you know the first two, i.e. The, the excess equity and the BCFI, then this policy impulse measure gives you a rough sense of, you know, at the margin, which way policy is tilting. And so we can see that in terms of second derivatives, you know, policy is pretty much back at neutral level globally. Uh, to us, US, Europe, China is the most important, so we just put them together. Um, so overall, if you look at the top three, it's essentially sending a message that, you know, the overall liquidity picture from a fundamental bottom-up point of view is, is pretty bad, right? If you aggregate the, the fundamental data and policymakers are still not shifting uh, yet. Uh, in terms of the bottom charts, this is why we consider more like a growth angle. So the bottom left-hand chart is our US, Europe, and China leading indicators. Um, so this is more, you know, like a cyclical model. So this is kind of a quadrant kind of idea model. Uh, whilst the bottom middle chart is our, our um, kind of Bayesian regime shift models for recession risks. So again, the main takeaway is that growth is slowing everywhere. Um, even in China, our LEI is still making new lows despite a lot of domestic easing. Uh, the main reason for this is the external inputs into our China LEI, things like, you know, trade inventory circulation. Uh, things like global manufacturing it's so bad it's all kind of overwhelming some of the stabilization in the china domestic data um so again overall the message is you, you, china and europe remain in recession for china it's an industrial recession and the risk of a u.s imminent u.s recession right now um is flagged as basically between 20 and 30 percent or you can see it it kind of came off a little bit um and then the final bottom right hand chart is, is an attempt to kind of correlate all these things into uh, towards what markets are discounting. So essentially that red line there, what we call the business cycle indicator is just the first principal component of all the kind of key LEIs we have um, when we tease it out. Um, you know, I don't think this is strictly the best way to view it, but it's, it's just, again, if you want to represent it in a, within a single chart, a single line, it's a pretty good representation. So we can see right now, there's still obviously a decent amount of um, earnings growth discounted into the market. Whereas, um, you know, most business cycle indicators would suggest that there's a pretty big slowdown coming. So this is why overall we still retain a, a risk off tilt because there's very little on the liquidity or the growth front to make us optimistic. And, and again, our, our real-time monthly updating models on recessions are pretty much still on for uh, China and Europe, right? Like these things actually react pretty quickly also at the end of a recession, like it, it'll drop quite quickly as well. But again, it hasn't happened. So if growth is terrible and liquidity is terrible, and consensus earnings are still somewhat optimistic, then again, it's very hard to be anything other than uh, other than thinking about, you know, being, being risk off in terms of six months plus outlook. Uh, and by yeah, the way, I, you know, I, I, we, I think... we can send this as a dashboard for, for clients, right? Like, you know, you know, we can send this out um, every month to clients, either the PDF, and um, we've already made a, a lot of improvements to our portal in terms of beta versions and stuff in, in the test environment that we're gonna be pushing out to clients soon. So you'll be able to access these charts um, through the portal and search for stuff yourself. Uh, sorry, Aaron, go on. Yeah, I was, I was just about to say that at the end that yeah, we these dashboards are available on request. And you know, for, for me as well, like if um, you know, when I was on holiday and then coming back, you know, these are the these are my first, you know, priority really, the chart that I want to see just to get a sense of um of that starting point. And then really it's about connecting the dots right to understand you know again what's being discounted by markets and you know thinking back through last month where um you know we, we had seen our recession signal jump it was it didn't trigger but it showed that the underlying recession risks um had risen pretty dramatically 
Um, and at the same time, the you know the rest of the desert island charts are telling us that the you know liquidity growth backdrop is is very very weak. So it tells us you know when markets were were rallying back you know pretty hard, it was a really good time for us to um, to sell into that rally. Uh, you know we advised hedges for spread callers. Um, you know we we sold um, equities and, and high yield credit into that rally. And um, I think it's um, you know it's testament to the fact that we always need to use the models and the data as a, as a critical starting point and then understand what action we should take based on um, how markets are behaving. Um, so I think that's, that's probably a nice lead in into the, um, into the re- recession uh, charts in the next slide where, um, you know, effectively, I would say that, um, again, the, the last leg is very much for, uh, for the consumer to break. Um, and so when we're looking at what markets are discounting, um, you know, for us, it seems like equities are still pricing kind of middle of the road recession, uh, but the key outlier is still um, 10 year yields where, um, you know, you have not seen that that classic recession scare. Um, you know, yes, we have seen a, a, a decent reversal from you know, the three and a half peak, um, and now we're getting pretty close to that again. Um, but again, I would say that, you know, we this is not the bond rally reversal that would lead us to, um, to check one of the, the ticks on our market bottoms checklist, right? So just reviewing that checklist and, and the thematic that we put out um, uh, just over a month ago, uh, the key missing pieces um, and things that we've seen at every historical market bottom is monetary easing. Um, and again, we're so far away from that. So that's a critical missing piece. Um, the other things um, alongside the bond rally reversal I mentioned is um, yield curve ceasing. Um, and again, that's linked to the Fed, right? Um, you know, we we don't have that as yet, um, and it's unlikely for that to happen until we see um, a, a Fed pivot getting priced in. Um, and so, again, we can we can extend this a bit further um, to sector pricing. Uh, we can get even more granular into sub industries and single name pricing. But again, the, the history is not as uh, not as great. Um, but something that I found very interesting is that uh, the defensive sectors are hardly pricing in a recession at all. Um, and so what we've seen in previous market bottoms, right, is we see that um, we see that kind of capitulation across sectors um, and the defensive, you know, collapsing at the same time as the cyclicals. Um, obviously, in terms of magnitude, not the same, but, you know, in, um, you know, relative to their own historical behavior, um, we're so far away from that. And um, interestingly, something a, a client flagged to us is that, you know, things like utilities, you know, classic bond proxies, relative to um, U.S. Treasuries, that ratio, um, it typically surges in the run-up to a recession. And we've seen that happen today. And again, it's linked to the idea of curve inversion and high duration assets um, outperforming at the, at the end. But again, we're not, we're not at that point yet where we've seen enough capitulation to, um, uh, to really check off more signs of a, on our market bottoms checklist. Great. So moving on, I think something we've got uh, quite a few questions about and had some very interesting conversations with clients about is on the European energy situation. Now, I would say this is, you know, this is not exactly within the VP wheelhouse of building a framework that's repeatable, but I think having spent a lot of time on it, I do think there's a few additional points we can make um, on what's going on. Obviously, the, the, the basic narrative is Europe um, is going to struggle, you know, uh, to meet its energy needs, there will need to be some kind of dramatic demand reduction. 
uh, going into the winter. And so obviously markets reacted accordingly. Um, you know, in terms of what the data does show, uh, as we put up here in the, in the kind of top left chart and the, and the top right hand chart is that actually in terms of storage, um, you know, the, the Europeans have obviously made a concerted effort to kind of pay up to get storage levels up uh, to kind of um, at least comparable to historical levels, if not slightly beyond, and just try and be ready, essentially. Um, what I would say is, again, just caveating, this is probably at this point slightly more opinion basis. I think the key question investors need to ask themselves right now is, are the Europeans going to give up or not as we're going to win threat? That's basically like, it's going to, that's basically going to determine everything. Um, now, I think the bigger context here is that this isn't just about the Europeans and, and the Russians, right? Ultimately, you know, the US and China are going to be watching very closely. If the Europeans give up, very, give up, give up and then the you know Putin's thing as like getting a win here then obviously that's dramatic implication in terms of what China might want to do with Taiwan how she thinks that the western countries are going to react and so you know I think because there's that big overhand there in terms of the possible chain of sequences I think the the US and the Europeans will be very reluctant to actually give up and I think there's actually a, a quite a strong will to see this through from like a longer term geopolitical angle um, you know, obviously, if you're purely looking at economics, if you're purely think coming at it as like a, you know, only looking at investment returns and the like, then obviously it, it will be, it seems pretty suicidal to like, you know, destroy your massively reduce uh, economic activity in, in your own country. But I think there's more of this bigger angle in terms of, you know, collide, collision of worlds and, and, and what China is going to do and ultimately fighting for kind of, um, you know, effectively a new Cold War, right? So with that context, I'm going to bet that the Europeans don't give up. If the Europeans don't give up, what are the implications? If they don't give up, they will have to obviously find a way to deal with the very high energy costs. This to me means that, as we've seen in the UK with uh, Liz Truss become prime minister, they will end up subsidizing. They're right. They will end up doing massive subsidies to ensure that the population does not suffer too much uh, in response to high energy prices. And you know, and you'll be termed like various things like you know solidarity with Ukraine or you know some kind of freedom kind of link, like you know. Uh, PR around it, right? Rather than just, um, you know, it won't be called the lockdown, it won't be called those kind of things, but effectively, I think that's what we'll get. Um, now, this sets off a very interesting policy mix because then what you end up with is tight monetary policy. You know, we saw with the ECB, you know, hiking 75 bips today, and then uh, expansionary fiscal policy in the context of running a fiscal deficit. So this is actually a classic setup where the, the counterintuitively, the currency actually performed well. So this was made famous in the original market with his book, with um, Drucker Miller um, buying the uh, buying the Deutsche Mark after after the collapse of um, the Soviet Union, right? So you had the thing where uh, you know at the time the story was that East and West Germany re reunification, it would be a huge amount of spending. Deutsche Mark initially sold off, and Drucker Miller's point at the time was the Bundesbank is not going to tolerate high inflation, so the Bundesbank will run a tight monetary policy. If you run tight monetary policy and lose fiscal, and you have a you know open capital capital account that will basically suck capital in and actually cause the the, the currency to go up. Um, you know, I had a I had a conversation around this just literally randomly with a client, you know, a very smart client actually yesterday, and we talked about it. And he and he flagged, yeah, this is the, the Mandel uh, Fleming model, and I, you know, I, I actually remember that from uh, economics class. So you know, there's also some theories uh, behind this, but essentially, I think this is actually what's going to be very interesting as a setup where. Once Europe goes and does massive fiscal easing, you might get the final down, down leg in the, in the euro where the knee-jerk reaction is, oh, this is just stupid. They're going to generate so much inflation. 
But actually, there's a few historical precedents that suggest this is why counterintuitively the currency actually will do well. Um, and Drucker Miller cited Soros as the original kind of um, person who realized this trade, because Soros basically did this in 83, 84 by going along the dollar uh, in a similar kind of setup. Uh, so I think this is like a very interesting um, uh, potential outcome uh, in the second half of the year for Europe. Um, the left-hand chart here we put up is also, I think, very interesting because there's been various kind of weather-related things we've had to look at. Um, you know, you know, we had the new employees who's you know been brilliant and, and spent a lot of time looking at some of the weather-related things. And he's pointing out that there's various models that are actually suggesting it's going to be a warmer than usual winter, a uh, warmer than usual winter in Europe. So obviously, this also reduces the tail risks in terms of the, the, the need for that gas and how big the demand reductions will need to be. And um, you know, so there's a few of these uh, you know long-term weather forecasting observatories. You know, there's things around sunspot cycles. So actually, a lot of signs actually potentially pointing to a warmer than usual winter in Europe, which will be um, uh, obviously help help to reduce the tail risk. So I, I think overall, on on the euro point, that's something that at least I, I think it's interesting to share with clients. I know it's very top of mind. The narrative seems just very dominated by you know is European recession or not. You know, obviously, our models we think that it's already in recession. But the more interesting thing is, is the path forward. And I think if we do end up with the Europeans not giving up, then that basically means they will have to do big fiscal easing with tight monetary policy. And then you might get the initial knee-jerk euro down, but then that'll be an opportunity to actually go along the euro. So I think that'll be a very, very interesting setup. We'll see if that path dependence plays out to, um, to, the, end of the, to the end of the year. Yeah, yeah Aaron, do you want to take this one? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, just to uh, talk through the, um, yeah, just the geopolitical framework you laid out, I think it is very interesting. And just to summarize, in, in my view, like we've got the effectively three key elements where, you know, you mentioned the um, the warmer than usual winter that's to be expected. Um, you know, we've got a, a pretty solid gas storage build, actually, um, across Europe. Uh, I think Germany's kind of middle middling but um across europe it's it's pretty strong relative to previous years and then you know the final piece which i perhaps don't think uh markets are fully uh discounting is the fact that we've already seen a huge amount of um gas consumption being slashed and you know with again we're tracking some of the um the, the single names and the, the manufacturers that are just saying that you know these prices we just can't operate we're going to keep shutting down and you know that is that gas consumption um reduction is still yet to come and so you know conflating all those three it does tell me that um you know perhaps the worst has been priced in in terms of energy prices and i would agree with you that you know naturally um you know with the the final um acceleration into the low with the euro i think it, it might be allowed to kind of tactically rebound from there um but yeah just um just going on to the the next point on um on the 10-year yield um you know, in our asset allocation update last month, we um, uh, we made the call to um, sell out of equities and credit and deploy some some cash, not all of it, into um, into bonds, long duration treasuries. And um, you know, obviously, with the recent action um, around Jackson Hole, um, you know, again with Fed speak this week, um, it does seem as though um, you know markets are trying to retest that three and a half level. Um, and I, I guess the way we would frame it is that. You know, again, going back to the key cyclical charts, um, you know, the, the roadmap is still very supportive for duration. And, you know, we're still yet to see that that classic recession scare um, where I think you see about a 150 bit move from uh, from peak to trough in the 10 year around that recessionary period. 
Um, and so for, for me anyway, it's, it's a good case to keep buying dips in bonds. Um, you know, I, I think that there is the other angle that we, we have done work on before and we do need to refresh that framework where we're looking at some of the, the more structural players in the market, understanding, again, linked to the geopolitics where, you know, a lot of the, the Japanese, um, you know, the, the, the strongest buyers, the lifers, the pension funds, um, you know, they've effectively been selling out of um, a lot of their treasury positions. Uh, the flip side of that, of course, is that their current account deficit has, um, you know, has worsened with the energy crisis, right? Um, and so it's not too surprising when we're looking at the flows data to see such a magnitude of, of outflows from U.S. treasuries. Um, and so to, to that extent is, um, and again, we're trying to marry that up with what, uh, with what these guys are actually saying and what they're doing. Um, you know, a lot of these guys are now saying, like a, a big uh, lifer was saying that, you know, at 3%, I'm going to be buying U.S. treasuries um, and not hedging the, the FX at all. And so it's, it's difficult, right? Because you see this, <laughs> this being said in, in the media and so forth, but um, we haven't seen that come through in the data. So to me, the, the structural picture is, is still quite mixed, right? Um, I don't know if... Um, you have uh, you have any views on on that side of things and how we marry that up with the, the cyclical capital? Um, yeah, so I think, well, it, it, so I think let's park the flow thing aside, right? Because I think the flow story is what's going to mess up the, the thesis. On most kind of normal cyclical kind of analysis, I would say actually, despite inflation and the absolute level of inflation, I do think the long duration roadmap makes a ton of sense. You know, there's lots of angles, right? Historically, periods of QE is actually when yields go up, right? And periods of QT is when yields go down. Um, you know, we've had obviously our recession models think, you know, we're going to close, we're getting closer to recession scare. Um, and so, you know, I, 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 and to your point, right? Ultimately, I think people do want to try and lock in a yield at some point. So I think, you know, a lot of these kind of cyclical, i.e., six months plus view um, things are pointing to us towards buying the, buying this dip quite aggressively in duration. Um, the thing that I would say holding us back initially is, with, you know, as you can see in the top right hand chart, in terms of tactical trading models um, on, on, uh, on US bond futures, right? Essentially, you know, it's, it's gone back to like very bearish again. So it's kind of gone back to saying, actually, you're in, in the short term, you're kind of um, expected return has actually gone pretty negative again. Because you, so you probably need this to play out a little bit more. So maybe this, this naturally exhausts itself actually on the retest of 350. Um, but, um, you know, I think the question I'm asking is, would you prefer to be in cash or in long duration equities? Is, and which one's gonna set you up better for when the cycle eventually turns again and you wanna move it back into buying equities or move it back into, you know, riskier allocations? I think that's the, that's the interesting question where, you know, I think for a lot of people, you know, the answer could just be sit in cash outright and just wait um, if they have the, the scope to do that, right? And I, I think that's fine. Whereas I think in my mind that this, because we've done the work on equity market bottoms, because the sequencing is almost always that eventually the central banks have to ease first. And I think you, you and this is like a reasonable level to already get long, um, to get, get long bonds that if the sequencing is that things need to get really bad first and then central and then policymakers panic. And then when they panic, that's when you get a big rally in bonds and your duration really pays off. I do think you'll you know, by being long duration, probably give you a bit more ammo um, at, you know, at the turn to, to deploy. So this, that's kind of more uh, the, the framing I'm thinking about. Um, the, the big concern to your point is the flow issue where, you know, 
there has been a lot of like you know foreign buyers of U.S. Treasuries. Like there's been a big support, and like because the world's getting more splintered, you know, Cold War kind of mentality traditionally is the Japanese, the Koreans, you know, the Taiwanese. Right, like a lot of these savers, a lot of these saving surpluses are what's getting recycled into U.S. Treasury markets. And because of the Russia-Ukraine war and the splinter in the world, obviously now you're getting the marginal savers are starting to run current account deficits. Right, they're the ones who have to import food, import energy. They're the ones where suddenly, you know, they don't, you know, suddenly at, at the margin, they're the ones drawing down on savings. Right, they're the ones suddenly running current account um, deficits. Whereas the, the surplus countries, you know, it's the Middle East, it's, you know, it's Russia, right? And then, and then, you know, these countries that are accumulating savings, this is an environment where they probably actually want to buy treasuries as much, right? Obviously, we're seeing, uh, you know, the, with the Russia story where, you know, you wake up one day, you realize your FX reserves are not really FX reserves, right? Like, and, and obviously China seeing that. We know there's been a pretty steady downtrend in China's holdings of US treasuries as well. So I think that's the, the probably like the, the, the structural overlay on top that really complicates the cyclical analysis. From a cyclical point of view, I think most things do suggest that long duration makes a lot of sense. But if you have that systematic selling flow on top, we'll have to, you know, we'll have to observe a little bit more, right? That data is not updated that frequently. You know, the Japanese LIFA and, um, and pension fund data is only to the end of July that we have. Um, similarly for a lot of the, the holdings dates, right? It's like June, July. So, you know, I think the next print will be very, very interesting to see. Um, yeah, so so that, so I think you know, I don't think that's a, that is directly the right answer, which is why we just kind of gone for this. You know, we're not max bullish, like you're saying, you should just go max overweight uh, uh, long duration bonds hit on this retest. But certainly, you know, we definitely be buying the debt, right? But maybe just not all in. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. I think the final leg is very much to see the recession signal trigger um, and then, you know, look at what markets are pricing in on that day and then uh, think about going max overweight. Um, but just just reviewing what, what you said, it reminds me of um, last year. Um, and I think what we got wrong with our bond framework was that I think we overweighted the, the cyclical element, right, where we saw growth and inflation leading indicators surging. Um, and then, you know, naturally that favors curves deepening, but we didn't um, appropriately weight the structural picture where, you know, again, the savings glut, we saw current account balances surging. Um, and so that net marginal buyer came in, right, to prevent the, uh, the curve from steepening too much. Um, and so now I would say, <laughs> reviewing where we are, I think the cyclical picture um, is, is too overwhelming to ignore, right? Such that, you know, these structural angles like savings and so forth are way too mixed to override the cyclical view right now. But yeah, as you say, again, the tactical model is, you know, it's, it's flip negative. Um, and so to the extent that we see that exhaust itself and we see our recession signal trigger, um, I think that'll be the, the key leg to, to finally go max overweight. But yeah, again, it, it makes sense to, to hold cash at this point. Um, you know, we flagged again the, the pre-deal spags as a nice little cash plus alternative. Um, but yeah, it, it does seem to be in this in this holding pattern. And I think for for me, just thinking through some of the the CPI uh, subcomponents and thinking about uh, next week's data, um, I'm I'm just um, trying to understand how to contextualize the the move. If we do get, you know, there's a good chance we could get an you know sub eight headline CPI print, right? Just given the um, data we've looked at with uh, you know, retail gas prices and, and so forth. But I'm just thinking that, you know, if 
the market does, you know, love that that news and you know equities and bonds rally together, then um, you know does that does that mean we should go kind of incrementally more bearish on on equities? Um, yeah, I, I, these are just things that again I think it's it's useful to have these um, these kind of catalysts in play, but then again we have to fall back to the cyclical you know desert island charts to really provide that that rigorous framework on which to build on. Yeah, I mean, I, I think maybe where I should end it is I think we got like a what sounds like a very contradictory asset allocation view, right? Which is like we want to be long commodities, long real assets, and long bonds at the same time, right? Like in almost in most situations, this seems really stupid because they, you know, they shouldn't, you know, it's obviously like does this, it, you know, when would they move together this way? But but I think ultimately this comes back to if we live in an environment where we're going to get a commodity induced recession where central banks continue uh, to worry about their credibility and therefore don't ease, then I think that that's the kind of setup where uh, the, the commodity rally ultimately is what induced the recession. So commodities go up and then, you know, that hurts everybody economy-wise, so you go into recession and then bonds end up actually doing okay because they don't have much recession risk discounted in and then suddenly people discount that, you know, eventually, um, eventually central banks will have to ease. Now, if central banks ease when inflation is still quite high, that'll set off the stagflation scare, like a legit stagflation scare again. But again, that's good for real assets. So that's probably more the why I think like as an asset allocation, why, why it kind of makes sense to hold these two pieces now. And then again, as we emphasize, the key is where are we on our market bottom checklist? Do we actually see your curve steepening? Do we see not just backing off from hiking, but legit easing uh, from central banks? If those things happen, then we would uh, obviously, then we can consider moving away from that, going back into equities. Um, but yeah, because we don't see that right now, it's, um, you know, I think that's, that's where we end up, which is, I think it's, it, obviously it's a pretty rare kind of time to want to do that allocation right, of, of being long commodities and not long bonds and long high duration bonds at the same time. Yeah, I think, I think you summed it up nicely. I think, um, yeah, it's, it's with the commodities induced rally, you do actually see commodities rally through that piece. And again, I think we need to delineate the time horizons where, you know, the, the long duration play is not a multi-year opportunity, right? It's a multi-month opportunity, whereas commodities, you know, we've been long since, uh, you know, mid-2020 and, you know, from the work that we've done with, uh, you know, lessons from commodities history, I think it still makes sense to stay structurally bullish. It's just, again, the cyclical is not, not too great, but it still makes sense to retain that core allocation, right? Great. Cool. Well, okay. Well, thanks everyone for uh, listening in and uh, we'll, yeah, we'll speak to you next month.